Hey everybody, welcome to episode 315 of the Running Rogue Podcast. This is your host, Chris McClung. I'm coming to you from Austin, Texas, and I'm excited about another episode today where I do a Q&A with a runner I coach, Nicole Winter. She is a running influencer on Instagram and has a following of, I think, over 100,000 runners right now and is somebody that I have the privilege to coach here in person in Austin. Helped her get to her first marathon in Houston last year in 2022. And here we are. She's about to race the Eugene Marathon this coming weekend where she's going for her first Boston qualifier. She's ready and I'm excited to see how the race goes for her this weekend. In advance of the race this week, we did an Instagram live where we answered questions from her followers, which are always great questions. Those questions all for the most part related to managing race week and the race itself. So I wanted to share that Q&A with you as well because there were lots of good questions. You can check out Nicole's feed if you'd like to watch the video of it. Her her feed is Nicole M. Runs. Otherwise, I'm going to jump into my conversation and you can listen to it now. Here we go with Nicole Winter. Hello, everyone. Happy Wednesday. We are doing a race-specific Q&A with my run coach once he joins me. Let me get the title pinned. Race Q&A. This always takes a second to connect. Okay, there we go. Hey, Chris. How's it going? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. They changed like the way that I let you in. It was kind of weird. Um, I'm here. I made but it. We're here. Um, all right. Chris is my run coach. I'll let you do your little intro and then we'll get right to our questions. Yes. I'm Coach Chris McClung from Rogue Running in Austin, Texas. We have runners in Austin, Dallas, and virtually all over the world. I also have a podcast, Running Rogue, that I have over 300 episodes of coaching knowledge. So if you want to go deep, then that's the place to do it. But I've been working with you since your first marathon. Mm-hmm. Um, you also have stayed so consistent on your podcast. I listened to like episode five the other day and you still sound the same <laughs> for better or for worse. Yes. Oh, it's the best. <laughs> um, yeah. So Chris trained me for Houston in 2022. Now we're tackling marathon number two this weekend on Sunday. So we thought it'd be fun to do a little race specific Q and a. So everybody sent in really good questions. Let's try to rapid fire. And then hopefully this time we can actually get to questions that people send in, but um, not hopeful. Um, And as always, feel free to DM either of us afterwards. Um, Let's get started. So the first question is, should I mimic elevation of the race course in my training? Yeah, good question. I absolutely believe that's important. One of the phrases that we like to use around Rogue is the, just a simple question. What does the race require? And that question will vary. The answer to that question will vary depending on the distance you're trying to tackle, the terrain you're trying to tackle, whether it's road or trail, and then obviously the elevation that you're trying to tackle as well. And so courses like the Austin Marathon has a really rolling hilly course. Boston, obviously, we know is a net downhill with a bunch of rollers in between. New York is a challenging rolling course. So if you're facing a course like that versus a course like Chicago or Houston, there's definitely things you want to do to prepare for that type of terrain by doing prep on them. So a couple of things we do. One of the things is 
is practicing on the course to the extent that you can or a course that has similar terrain. So obviously when we're training athletes for the Austin Marathon, we do the course as much as we can, at least parts of it, so they can start to simulate that not only on easy long runs, but also on long runs that incorporate marathon pace work. And so I like to see anytime you're doing marathon pace work inside a long run two to three times per training cycle for a marathon that you would do that on a course that's as close as possible to mimicking what you might do on race day. And if that has rolling hills, incorporate rolling hills. If it's a net downhill, to the extent that you can do that, incorporate that. Here in Austin, we will do a Boston simulator on a point-to-point course that is net downhill. Also, we simulate the CIM marathon, which is a net downhill via a course like that. You may not be able to do that in the location that you're in, depending on your terrain, but you can incorporate some pieces that might mimic what you face on race day because it is important to not only prepare your legs, but also to prepare your mind for what you'll face. So, yes, absolutely incorporate that type of terrain in your your training runs and prep. Amazing. Um, Next question. Why pay for a coach versus use a free app like Nike Run Club? (laughs) Good question. Why do I exist is really what you're (laughs) asking. (laughs) So maybe this is an existential question. But um, but I would say really only 20 to 20 percent of 20 to 25 percent of what I do is write schedules like mm-hmm. honestly that's the easy part i mean i'm sure chat gpt could could throw out a marathon playing training schedule at this point but what you're paying for when you're paying for a coach is you're you're paying for a partner who is going to be as invested if you choose the right one in your goal as you are and that gives you access to someone that's going to push you in ways you can't on your own that's going to be able to modify things that that you need that are specific to you in ways that you can't get from an app or from a a training schedule you get off of an online plan. They're going to also be able to help you work through the ups and downs of training in a way that are going to be unique in, for example, you know, you had an injury last fall. Mm -hmm. Navigating that with an app is virtually impossible because you needed a custom plan really to build back from that injury in order to make sure you didn't get hurt again. And then obviously when it came to training for this race we made modifications to your plan it's also that person that you can call when you have questions when you have doubts Uh, they're also going to be that person that can push you in ways that you may not think you could do on your own Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. one of one of i think it's a privilege for me as a coach when i get to tell somebody what's possible for them before they can even dream it on their own and those are the things that a coach can do that an app's not going to give you. Yeah. Immediately. I think too, even like with travel or maybe you're sick or like we said, an injury, you're not able to reach out to customer service for the app. They're not going to help you with those individual things. Um, And somebody really quick asked, um, do you work with people that live out of state Um, or do you suggest finding a local coach? So if you want to touch on that. So yes, we work with a lot of people that are out of state, even out of country, actually, within our rogue family. We have a virtual group program that I coach that is sort of a podcast-based program, and we also have an online forum where we give you information as well. And then we have virtual one-to-one training where I'm meeting over Zoom with people once a week, as well as, of course, giving them a schedule to follow and giving them all of that instruction on their own. And then we have our in-person groups in Dawson and Dallas. 
virtual programming, I think, works great for somebody who might not have access to that local resource mm-hmm. that that can give them that information. And so we have almost 100 athletes all over the world that are in that virtual one-to-one category. We have about 100 athletes that are in our virtual group training. So there's different ways to access us. Access us. And the power of that, I think, is that we've learned through all the tools that we have in our now virtual world that we can be as effective as coaches in that environment. Mm-hmm. Whereas before we were learning if that was true, you know, going back to 2016, when I started my virtual group training, I wasn't sure what it would look like in a virtual environment, but we've had a lot of success with that. But of course, you know, in-person coach is also great. If you've got somebody that you can access that you can see, you know, you work with me in person here in Austin, and that's Mm -hmm. powerful to be able to have that touch point, but it doesn't have to look that way, depending on what you have access to. Right. And our first training cycle together, we actually mostly did virtually because I wasn't coming to your group. So I can say yeah. both were great. And obviously it's nice to have the added benefit of seeing you for our speed workout, but I think it's just as effective. Um, yeah. Okay. Next, um, somebody says they're always dehydrated during races, despite hot hydrating constantly, um, which I wonder what that looks like. So they're wondering your tips. Yeah, that's that's a tricky one. I think one of the things to first recognize is that you can be analytical about hydration if you're willing to dig into it a little bit. And everybody has different sweat rates and those sweat rates can vary as much as four to five times from one person to the next. And that, that can be really tricky for those that are heavy sweaters. And so one of the things I recommend first is just to collect information about how much water you're losing on a run by doing a simple sweat test. I have a podcast episode on this, which we can we can find that number. But basically what you're going to do is weigh yourself before a run, go for a run, weigh yourself after the run, after you drop. And that weight loss, assuming you're not going to the bathroom or taking in any fluids during that run, that weight loss is your sweat rate. And if you take that in pounds multiplied times 16 ounces, that's the amount of fluid that you're losing in a run each hour. And the average male my size actually loses about two pounds per hour. So about Mm. 32 ounces of fluid per hour, which I think for most people sounds like a lot, but Mm. that's actually average. And I have a friend that I ran with this morning his sweat rate, sweat rate is actually four times that. So oh. he's losing about 120 ounces per hour, which is a Dang. significant amount and obviously affects him differently than it affects me. Yeah. Ultimately, on longer runs, you need to be replacing about 75% of that. So for me, that works out to, because I lose about two pounds per hour, that works out to 25 ounces per hour that I need to be taking in over a long run in order to stay on top of hydration often in addition to taking electrolytes as well. Mm -hmm. So once you have that information, then you can do that simple math to say, okay, I need to be replacing about 75% of that, which likely for most people means taking in more water than you're currently doing. And I would start with that math. Also recognize that you need to be hydrating well outside of your training as well. A lot of people neglect that piece of the equation and they're really only focused on in-run hydration or or pre-run hydration. And so you want to make sure that you're hydrating well throughout the day with electrolytes so you can actually absorb it as you take it in. And between those two things, having that information about your sweat rate, accommodating that about 75% of it, you need to replace. 
and hydrating well throughout the week, usually we can solve these hydration type problems. Mm-hmm. And I yes, Claire, Claire, Claire raised the question, doesn't hydration vary based mm-hmm. on weather too? And that is true. Yeah. And so what you want to do is you, you want to do that sweat rate in different conditions or do that sweat test in different conditions to the extent that you have them in order to figure out what how that might vary depending on the weather, the temperature, the humidity, et cetera. And so if if you're in the summer, you're obviously going to sweat more than in the winter conditions um, in most, most climates. And so you'll want to test both to see what that variation is. And then when you're mm-hmm. in those like conditions, then you'll hydrate accordingly. Got it. Um, all right. What should you eat the day before your marathon? Good question. A lot of people ask this in context of asking about carbo loading. Mm-hmm. And I have also a podcast episode on this, but I generally don't recommend for most people thinking about carbo loading at all. Carbo loading does work, but there's but you have to follow a specific protocol that takes up to about a week in order to effectively do it. And it requires significantly changing your diet for a full week, in which case that can often cause a lot of disruption to people in that week prior to the race. And so I typically don't recommend that unless you have practice with it. And so if you're in a situation where you haven't practiced that and or you don't want to get into the rigor of a full seven day carbo loading protocol, then really what you want to do with the day before a race is just eat very normally, eat normal things. And in normal quantities that you know won't mess with your stomach so that you can wake up the next day feeling good and feeling like you can go go get it done. But I wouldn't worry specifically about carbo loading. Certainly don't do anything you haven't already done prior to long runs in your training. Got it. Um, how many runs per week? How many? I don't know what this question means. How many miles per week for training for the first marathon? So I assume they're curious what your recommendation would be and this is going to vary significantly depending on your running background and how how you get to the marathon distance somebody asked me once what's a minimum number you would want to see for somebody prepping for a marathon and i think the math i came up with was like 42 or 43 miles a week Mm -hmm. that you would build to at your peak because my typical recommendation even for a first marathon is that you run five days a week, if that's possible with your schedule, that those five days would include a quality workout where you're doing a little bit of speed, a long run, which we often hear about that would ultimately build up to 20 miles, a medium long run, which is going to be your second longest run of the week. And then two recovery runs, one that would happen after your speed day, that's going to be a short, super easy run. And then one after your long run. And those can be as short as three or four miles while the other days, usually a medium long run, I like to get people up to seven or eight miles in that first marathon. Quality workout's going to be six to seven miles, and then your long run's going to be up to about 20. Well, and then somebody did ask, um, I saw in the questions here, that they're training for Chicago, and they were curious, what would be the latest they could start training? So at any for any marathon, like what would you suggest the shortest training cycle? Yeah, my recommendation typically is a 20-week cycle because you want to have plenty of time to go through all the phases of training in order to peak at the right time. Mm-hmm. So that would those 20 weeks would include what we call a base phase or a priming phase where you're building your volume, building your routine, doing a little bit of speed just to prep your body for more rigorous speed work to come. 
that typically is going to be four to five weeks. Then you go into a, what we call a strength phase, which is not muscular strength, but it's actually aerobic strength or endurance. And that's your ability to sustain slightly uncomfortable paces for longer periods of time. In that phase, we'll typically do aerobic strength workouts that are lower or slower on pace, still fast, but slower on pace with with shorter recoveries. We'll also do hill work during that period of time. That'll be about six weeks. Then you'll go into a six weeks or so race specific phase, which would be where you're prepping to run race pace. And that will be marathon pace. And so you'll do some marathon pace workouts in that window, but also do some speed workouts that are faster than marathon pace in order to make marathon pace feel easier. And then for a marathon, we'll have a three-week taper where we pull back on volume and speed work in order to make sure your body's rested and ready to go for a race day. So Mm -hmm. all that together is typically about 20 weeks. And if you're doing it effectively, then you'll give yourself that time to prepare in the right way. So you don't believe in like a 10, 12-week training plan? No, No. You can do a crash course, but it's usually only effective for somebody who's already consistent year round. Mm -hmm. And even still, you're probably leaving opportunity on the table by shortcutting it like that. Okay. Cool. Um, All right. Somebody's asking specifically for a BQ, but they're curious on how to create a pacing plan for the marathon. So if we're talking about race specific execution, then that's really going to come down to For most races that are 10K or longer, it's going to come down to doing what we call a negative split plan, meaning that you run the second half faster than the first. And it's going to vary some depending on the elevation of the race. But if we were looking at sort of a flat race profile, then what you would typically do for a marathon is start about 30 seconds per mile slower than your target pace. Work down to your target pace over the first three to four miles by about 10 seconds a mile. Hold that for t- through 21 as at a consistent rhythm as much as possible. And then over the final five miles, pick it up a little bit as you finish in progression. That's the general blueprint in order to have a f- an effective marathon. Because ultimately what you're doing early on is you're warming into the race appropriately. You're also banking energy that you can use at the end. Most people make the mistake of going out too fast in which case they're burning more energy than they should. And often that leaves you in a situation where you're slowing down at the end instead of picking it up. Me. Not this time, though. No. <laughs> Not this time. Um, all right. How do you mentally prepare when you've actually never ran the entire distance in training? I remember asking you this question <laughs> before Houston. It's hard. It's hard because at some level you have to operate on faith that you've done everything right. And this is where I think having a coach can be really helpful because, you know, I've coached thousands of athletes to their first marathon. And, and so the path that I would put you on, if you were a first marathon or working with me is a very well paved path. It's something where I could say, look, that person did it and that person did it and that person did it. So you can also do it. Mm -hmm. So looking at those around you and following a plan that you believe in and trust in with a coach that you believe and trust, you can lean a lot on that as a foundation to say, okay, if he's done it before and they've done it before, then me doing the same thing is going to result in being able to cover that distance. The other thing I like to remind people of is the fact that when you're doing something you've never done before, 
whether that be run your first marathon and just complete it or run a certain time in a marathon that you've never hit. It's impossible to know whether it's possible or not. And so trying to think too far ahead, or as I like to say, run the whole race in your mind at once is very, very overwhelming and often leads you down a path of doubt and anxiety. So rather than focus on the things that you don't know, because you can't know, rather than focus on that, I encourage people to focus on the things they do know, Mm -hmm. which is what they can control in terms of their race plan, their execution relative to nutrition and hydration, and then ultimately to focus on that first mile running literally a mile at a time. You don't know if you can run 26 miles at a certain pace, but you do know you can run one. And that is all that is required when you start is to run that first mile on Mm -hmm. plan and then run that second mile on plan and let the later miles take care of themselves when you get there. Because Mm -hmm. I promise you, if you've done the work and you've had faith in your training, then when you get there, you're going to be prepared to execute those final miles. Mm -hmm. So that's an overall approach point. And then from a specific point, I recommend in any race you do, whether it's your first or, or you're shooting for your fastest, is to use mantras and positive self-talk to really walk you through those moments of the race that might create doubts or that might cause challenge. And so one of the categories I recommend is having rhythm mantra. Rhythm mantra is a, a mantra, a word, a phrase, could be even a visual image that you go to, to help you find a rhythm, to help you be efficient, to stay relaxed, to try to be as smooth as possible for as long as possible, which in a distance race, half marathon or marathon is really important in those early and middle miles. And then I like to encourage people to have fight mantras for the end. So for those final six miles of a marathon or final three miles of a half marathon, what are you going to tell yourself to fight, to push, to try to dig deep, to get to those levels that you may have never been to before? And what words, phrases are going to resonate with you in those moments? Because what those do and science tells us that it helps us dissociate from the pain when we have something like that to focus on. So that's another way to get through it is to just prepare your mind mentally and have those mantras ready to go in those tougher parts of the race. Mm-hmm. I love that. I think that's my favorite coaching tip from you, the mantras. Also something that helped me, which I'd be curious your opinion on this, but during training, we're running 40, 50 miles a week. So knowing that your legs did that over the course of seven days, surely you can run a couple more miles in that long One run day. that is race day. Yeah. Yeah, which is a good point. I also like to point out to people that most of the time, you know, if you're running your long runs the right way, you're doing them easy for the most part. Mm-hmm. And so if you're running 20 or 22 miles easy in your long run, most of the time you're getting to a total time that might be equivalent to what you're shooting for on race day, even if the total distance isn't the same. So while the distance is still on an unknown, the time on your feet is not. And so that you can lean on as well. All right. How should you decide race pace, if not confident in the training race pace? So I assume this person was doing that pace maybe during a long run or a speed workout and they're not feeling good about it. Yeah, that's a tricky one without full context because I do think this is a more personal type question. Mm -hmm. But what you do want to see, whether you're you're doing a workout at half marathon pace for a half marathon or you're doing a workout where you're running marathon pace for a marathon, you do want to see that you have control at those paces. And so for a marathon, especially 
if you're doing smaller segments, two or three miles in training at that pace, you want to finish those segments feeling like you could hold it for a lot longer. And that's not to say that everyone goes perfectly because we all have those bad days, but it is to say that you should feel generally that you have control over that pace, that you can get relaxed and comfortable at that pace. I also like people to practice workouts where they're going in and out with a faster pace as well. For example, today we had our marathoners running 5K pace for a segment of the workout, then rolling right into marathon pace so that they were actually learning to recover at marathon pace, which gives you a sense for how much control you have at that pace. But if it's not controlled, if you don't feel like you can hold it for a long period of time, and it's not just a one-off, it's every workout that feels that way, then I would definitely encourage you to adjust backwards because ultimately you want to feel like you have control. It should be comfortably hard marathon pace. It should feel sustainable for a long time. And if it's not, you want to back off until you find that rhythm that is sustainable. Got it. Um, Okay. So somebody asked, not always a morning runner due to my schedule. So how should they train their body to wake up for race day? Good question. I'm not a morning person, but I get up and run early. So I, I do think there is an element to practicing this at least a few times during your training. I used to be a night runner prior to having children, and it was tough to make the transition to the mornings, but I've effectively done that. But even when I was running in the evenings, I would still do some long runs where I would get up at about race time and try to run at that point so that you can practice that routine, which includes not just the running, but also what you're going to eat right mm-hmm. before, how you're going to manage going to the bathroom, are you going to drink coffee or not, You know, managing all those pieces so that you can practice that in the rhythm of the time period that you're going to race. And I would say that's even true for a race that starts later if you can do it. So a race like Boston, where the start times are 10 a.m. up to 11.25 a.m., you're going to want to practice that later start if you can, because there are logistics associated with that. Or New York has the late start as well. So to the extent that you can practice your start time in your long runs at least a couple of times, I would try to do it. Yeah, that question stressed me out. <laughs> it's like you got to practice. Did you ever do a long run in the evening? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. Okay. Yeah, I've done. Yeah, when I was prior to kids, but this would have been a long time ago now, 15 years ago, dating myself, I would I would do most of my runs in the evening and sometimes as late as 10 p.m. or, or 11 p.m. Oh. I was... I'm a night owl and I would go really late and that was, that was, it worked for me at the time. It does not work now. Yeah. I was going to say, I don't even think I could fall asleep after that. (laughs) Um, All right. How long should you taper for a half versus a full? So, yes. So there are generic answers to this. And then sometimes that gets modified in the specific situation, but generally we say three weeks for a marathon where you start to pull back mileage and I'll give you some rules of thumb on that. And then two weeks for a half marathon. And so that would mean that your longest long run for the marathon would be three weeks out from race day. And then from there, you start to pull back. My recommendation, and then for a half, two weeks out. My recommendation, whether you're, whether you're backing off for three weeks or two weeks, is the same. That you cut back other than long long runs, which would be usually typically a prescriptive plan based on your schedule, that you would cut back one mile per run per week as you pull back with your taper. So if your normal medium long run or normal kind of easy run during the week is six miles prior to your taper, you would cut that back by one mile each week 
first week would be five, then four, then three during race week. And if you follow that sequence, typically it makes it really easy to pull back. Sometimes you'll hear people talk about formulas like, well, I want you to cut back 25% and then 35% and then 45%. But I found that those percentages can be very confusing, especially when you get to race week. So mm-hmm. that's my recommendation is cut back one mile per run per week, starting at three weeks for the marathon or two weeks for the half. Okay. Um, advice for a marathon runner who is not in season. I guess this one's not really race specific, but we can go yeah. over that. Well, I mean, first of all, if you've done your marathon, congratulations. You want to properly recover from that, which does involve some movement. I, I recommend mm-hmm. a three-week recovery plan where you're running a little bit to make sure that you're getting that blood flow that helps your muscles heal themselves. And then after that, the most important thing to think about is just continuity and consistency between that cycle and whatever might be your next cycle. And so you want to make sure you're maintaining some baseline volume to bridge the gap to your next cycle. Otherwise, you're going to seriously detrain and then when you get back to training again you're going to have to ramp up significantly and that will cause you to not reach the potential in the next cycle that you could had you been consistent mm-hmm. and i used to be a runner when i first started who would do that it would take big gaps once i did a race and i would take three months off and then i would start another training plan and eventually i realized that that caused me to plateau and i wasn't getting to my potential in that next cycle so i developed a year-round habit during that off season you don't have to be as rigorous or have as many miles, but I like for people to maintain their routine as much as possible. So try to run all the days you normally would in a cycle, but just reduce the volume by could be 50%, could be 25%, depending on what's sustainable to you. But as long as you're maintaining that routine, it'll allow you to hold on to baseline fitness so that the next time you start training again, you'll be at a better place. So that would be what I would recommend is maintain routine, but just cut back volume a little bit. I'm excited for that because I'm like you a while ago where I take big gaps after races, but this time I don't really have a choice. So <laughs> that's right. We'll see what it's like. Um, okay. And then last question I, we've definitely gone over this before, but I thought it was fitting to answer top tips for running your first marathon. Who? Yes. Yeah, so let's start with training first of all. So, you know, with your first marathon, you definitely want to have counsel, whether that be following a plan that you can get online or one that you get from a coach and you can have a coach follow you with that journey, either one. You definitely want to have a plan because it's hard to wing a marathon. There's a certain level of rigor that you need to put into it. So I highly recommend getting a plan in some form or fashion. Another thing to think about as you do that is to make sure that you're running easy enough most of the time. I think there was a question earlier about should I be running marathon pace for my long runs Mm -hmm. with each long run? And the answer is no. Most of the time you want to be running, and that would be 80 to 85% of the time, you want to be running at easy efforts, which would be about a minute to 90 seconds slower per mile than marathon pace, and even slower than that, another 30 seconds slower than that versus half marathon pace, so that you can not only build the right parts of your aerobic system, but also stay injury free as you go. So make sure your runs are easy enough. And then, thirdly, when it comes to planning and preparation, nutrition is critical. Nutrition and hydration are critical components. And you have to practice that during training to figure out what works for you. So make sure that once your long long runs get over two hours, 
that you're practicing your nutrition on every single run so that you can dial that in. Mm-hmm. A general starting point for that is, you know, take gels, start at one hour into your training run, and then come back to them every 35 to 40 minutes or so, so that you can continue to, to keep that, that nutrition flowing once you start. So that's training. Have a plan, run easy enough, think about your nutrition nutrition and hydration so that you can figure out that before race day and then for race day itself for somebody who's a first timer you know my number one goal is to finish make sure they can get across that that line my number two goal is for them to finish strongly and that requires from my perspective not necessarily having a specific time goal but having what i would call a target time you want to have a plan still that equates to your fitness and so figuring out how to dial into what's very reasonable and comfortable for you for that race so that ideally you can finish strong and run faster in those final miles and then finish feeling good and feeling like you want to do another one and maybe that you left a little bit of time on the table. That's how I like people to finish their first marathons. And that requires a smart but conservative plan where you're running well within yourself, but starting even slower than that, working down to it, holding it, and then trying to progress over those final three to five miles, depending on how you feel. If you can do that, then you've aced your first marathon. I'd much rather that than have somebody finish walking or feeling like they're struggling at the end. But easier said than done, of course. I do think it's possible, though, on your first race to do that. And to have fun. You told me that. Have fun. That's right. Don't yeah. forget. Don't forget to enjoy it. Be a spectator within the race. Yes. Yeah. Soak it all in. Um, okay. Really quickly. Somebody asked if you could train for your first full after doing a half. Um, and then I saw earlier, somebody else was saying, what if they do a 16 week marathon training plan after they just finished a half marathon? Does that count into their training? I don't know if we can bundle all of those into one question. So, so yeah, sure. So. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I think you can go from a 10K to a marathon if you want to. That's mm-hmm. what I did personally. There's no defined path. I think obviously it's helpful if you have a more linear progression, but I don't think it's required. The main thing that's required to do a marathon is just that you're willing to do the work and that you have the time to do it. So happy to obviously help anybody with that. But the answer is yes, you can absolutely progress to a marathon once you've done a half, but I think you could even do it if you've just done shorter races as well, if you give yourself 20 weeks plus to get there. And then in terms of transitioning from a half cycle to a full cycle in 16 weeks, yes, it's possible. Personally, I prefer that you not do that because you want to properly recover from the half, first of all, which takes a couple of weeks, takes about a mile sorry, a day for every mile of the race to recover fully. Even after the soreness is gone, your muscles are still repairing themselves. So that's about two weeks for a half marathon. And so if you give yourself those two weeks and then the proper time to then properly rebuild to the marathon again, it's still going to be, if you want to get your most potential out of the marathon, a 20-week process. And I understand how that can be frustrating. And yes, we can short-circuit it on one-off situations. But if you want to, think long term if you want to reach your max potential long term you won't short circuit training cycles the human body is not designed for that we're designed to peak a couple of times a year and when you get greedy and you try to go for more peaks than that ultimately what you're doing is you're limiting your long-term potential by rushing things 
And so I'm a coach who's always thinking long-term. Most people have plenty of time. We can improve for decades if we're willing to put in the consistent work. And so there's no rush. Don't let yourself fall into that trap of trying to short circuit the next cycle. Give yourself that proper time to detrain from the last cycle and then rebuild again. Because if you do that, I promise you, you will reach a higher place than if you try to meld them together. Mm-hmm. You have to trust the process. I'm one of those impatient people. <laughs> yep. Um, okay, let's do it. Do you have time for one more? Sorry, yep. I didn't realize it was so late. Okay. No worries. Um, I feel like you have strong opinions on carbon plated shoes. So someone's asking how often you should train in them um, before yep. using them for the marathon or a half. Yes, I I don't I don't have issues with carbon plated <laughs> shoes. I mean, we're look, we're in a, we're in an age where you, if you're not thinking about wearing them, then you're probably leaving time on the table. And mm-hmm. honestly, if you're buying a race shoe, that's pretty much everything you can get these days. So you kind of yeah. have to kind of go there. And, and so then it's just a question of finding the one that works for you, which is not an easy process necessarily, because each brand works a little bit different and feels a little bit different. And there's some, honestly, where people say, hey, I tried this brand, it actually hurt me or it didn't quite work for me. And so I had to switch and try something else. So giving yourself a little bit of time to play with that, I think is going to be important. I wouldn't rush into getting a carbon plated shoe. You know, if your race is in two or three weeks or a month, even it's probably not enough time to worry about it. You want a little bit more time. I actually have a whole episode on this, but my general advice, once you find the shoe that works for you is to first try it in workouts where you're doing it for speed work, where you might be going six, seven, eight miles in that shoe, running faster paces, make sure it works for you in that context. Once you know that's true, then try it for one or two long runs to make sure it works in the long run context, potentially with one of those long runs being a workout long run where you're working in some pace work. And once you have that dialed in and everything, you know, all systems go, then I think you can Use it sparingly so that you save that spring and energy for race day because there there is some science that shows that those run out of efficacy really quickly, even Mm -hmm. after the first couple of times of wearing them, depending on the shoe. And so you want to make sure you're maintaining max, you know, capability for race day itself. So I recommend using them sparingly once you figure out what works for you and then saving it for race day or getting a fresh pair for race day so that you can have that max spring effect. Because you're really, for most of them, only getting about 100 to 150 miles max out of those shoes versus a normal training shoe where you're getting 300 to 400 miles. So you have to be very Mm -hmm. careful about overdoing it, especially given that some can be expensive. Right. I was going to say that's the biggest thing is they're all pretty pricey too. Um, Okay. Somebody also asked what GPS watch. We you use Coros when you run, right? Yeah, yep. Coros pays Coros too. Pays too yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I look. I I'm I'm a new Coros wearer. I got mine last summer. I it was previously a Garmin wearer. I have no complaints about Garmin either, and I think both are great. Both do everything you need them to do. I found that I like the Coros because of the longer battery life. Yeah. I also appreciate appreciate the fact that they have that two hundred dollar price, which has mm-hmm. really everything you need and nothing you don't. Some of the more expensive garments have a bunch of other features to them, which can be great for some people. But for me, I don't necessarily need those to be able to track HRV and do smartwatch features and things like that. And so I've settled onto the Coros and really enjoy it. But I, all the garments are great as well. 
you just want to, you do want to have something that is a running specific watch. I believe yeah. I was just, I was just talking to an athlete who has a Fitbit and while that's a great fitness tracker and great for general fitness purposes, it's probably not going to be your best tool for running specific workouts. So I was recommending the Coros to her and same with an Apple watch. I think you wear both on your runs. An Apple watch is great for general fitness, not mm-hmm. as great for rigorously tracking your runs. And so even if you have an Apple watch, I tend to recommend somebody also get a running specific watch as well. Yeah, the Coros is much more accurate for the record. I only wear two watches because my Apple watch is my cellular and I'm going to run without my phone. So I've been practicing too, but that's the only reason I wear both. Um, Okay. And then last thing, somebody wants to know if Rogue is doing New York City training again. Well, obviously NYC Marathon, but was that a specific thing? Or? So yeah, we, we, for a period of about, gosh, probably two or three years before the pandemic, we had a New York in-person training oh. group that was cool. in, that was in partnership with Jackrabbit. That partnership um, is now over and ultimately did not survive the pandemic because New York was shut down. And so we had to shut down that group during the pandemic and we lost our coach in the process and we haven't been able to restart it, unfortunately. So we do not have New York city in-person training at the moment, but we do have actually a fair number of athletes that are based in New York that train with us virtually either through group training or through one-on-one training. So that would be an option if you're in New York. Cool. All right. This is getting a little messy now with all the questions. So I say we wrap it here. Um, They're good last- questions, though. Your your listeners and followers always have good questions, so I always appreciate that. Yeah, we need to do one where we don't do a question box before and just let people ask live. Yep. Um, but before we go, let people know where they can find you, how they can reach out to you for coaching, and all that good stuff. Yes, so a lot of easy ways. One, you could just email me, chris at roguerunning.com dot com r o g u e make sure you spell that right mm-hmm. you can dm me on instagram at rogue chris you can check out our website roguerunning.com and those are all good ways to get in touch with me you can also if you just want to learn listen to my podcast running rogue which you can find on all the all the different channels i've got i think 314 episodes at this point on all of these topics and quite perhaps uh, not nauseating detail depending on how into it you are and this is what i do because i love it and i think i'm good at it so happy to help also excited about your race coming yes, up this four weekend, days big, yep, yeah yeah chris has prepared week. me well yeah i'm feeling good you're so, i you're so ready yeah i feel good thanks to you um and i appreciate all the help i'll be listening to your podcast all weekend Um, But I'll make sure to link everything in my stories. And then are you going to upload this audio to your podcast too? I will. Yeah, I like doing that. I think feedback has been that people like that because then they can just plug in and listen without having to worry about the video. So I'll make sure to share that too. I'll do that for this week. Okay. Yes. Well, thank you so much, Chris. We'll see you next time. And I'll make sure to save this also for everybody. Awesome. Okay. Thanks, Cole. Thanks, Chris. Bye. Bye. So there you go. We did it and uploaded to the podcast for episode 315. Thanks to Nicole for having me on. Thanks to all of her followers for the great questions. And of course, thanks to you for listening. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at roguerunning. And you can follow me at roguechris. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.